0: Well, good morning. It is great to have you all here at Willow. I want to say a very special welcome to those of you joining us online at all of our Willow locations as well. Big shout out to our friends in Huntley, in Crystal Lake, South Lake, North Shore, Chicago, and our good friends in Wheaton. Welcome to all of you as well. As we're continuing this series, we've been in for the last few weeks that's called We Are Willow. And I love this, just the ability to really dive in and unpack our mission statement. We are committed to be a church That loves God, loves people, and changes the world. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that loves God well, loves people well, and changes the world. And so I'm really excited, not only for what this series means, I'm excited of what it's going to look like for us to be a church that continues to step into this vision that God has given us. And so this week, we're going to look at the last part of that mission statement of what it means to change the world. Now, as far as our mission statement is concerned, I think this is the most daunting piece of it. Uh, what, is, what does it really look like for us to consider being a world-changing type of church? That's a pretty daunting thing to even begin to consider, particularly in the climate that we experience our world today. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, it's been a kind of a tough season over these last couple of years. We're still trying to navigate this pandemic that really needs to be over yesterday, Right? I mean, it's been a, been a tough journey kind of slugging through this. Uh, probably more than any other time, at least in my lifetime, I don't know that I've ever seen a more divided political climate that we are experiencing today. Tensions are continuing to rise between different groups of people that see the same issue in radically different ways. And so in a cultural climate that seems so difficult, how in the world do we even begin to engage in world-changing types of activities? Well, I think the good news for you and the good news for me is we don't have to look any further than Jesus. I would go as far to say that Jesus also stepped into a very difficult climate in the cultural context that he stepped into. I mean, think about his world. It probably wasn't that different than our world. He stepped into a world that had all kinds of political volatility to it. The Romans had just taken over Israel. There were all kinds of political divisions, uh, uh, challenges in his day. The, The oppressive nature of the Roman government would have been borderline repulsive. Not only that, people were incredibly divided in Jesus' day. They were divided over gender lines, over religious lines, even over ethnic types of lines. It was a very divided world. In some ways, Jesus' world looked somewhat similar to our world. And yet when Jesus stepped into his world, he flipped it upside down. You could make the argument that Jesus changed the world. And so if we want to be a world-changing type of church, if we want to be world-changing types of individuals, I think it serves us well to really look at the life, the ministry, the teaching, the example of Jesus and follow in the footsteps of who he was and what he did. Now, there's a lot of places we could go in Scripture to look at the, the world-changing life and ministry of Jesus. I want to take us just to one of those places. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the very first book of the New Testament. Again, a book called Matthew. It's a biography of all that Jesus uh, did, taught, experienced written by one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, God the name of Matthew. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, we actually read Matthew's autobiographical account of his own encounter with Jesus. I mean, you could argue that every single person that Jesus encountered in that moment, they kind of have a, a, a world-changing type of experience with him, and Matthew's story was no different. And so Matthew talks about his own experience and how his encounter with Jesus changed his own life. And in it, we see so much power in really what Jesus' world-changing type of ministry looked like. So follow with me. In Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 9. It says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and, uh, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous, but sinners." It's a powerful, short, little passage that we learn so much about Jesus' kind of world-changing perspective and how he engaged people and ultimately engaged the world. Now, in order to understand the power and the radical nature of the story, you got to understand a little bit about Matthew's profession as a tax collector. Now, if you know anything about tax collectors in the ancient world, you know that they were hated individuals. Nobody liked the tax collector for a lot of different reasons. You see, what happened when Rome conquered a particular country or land— they used local people to be their tax collectors. And how those tax collectors made money is they just charged additional money to whatever the taxes that Rome decided to collect. And that's how the tax collector made their own money. So, for example, if for your family, Rome set the tax at $1,000, the tax collector would lie, cheat, swindle, deceive you in order to give them $2,000. So they would give 1000 to Rome and keep 1000 for themselves. They were masters at lying, cheating, and deceiving their own people. And because of that, everybody hated them for it. And again, not only were they kind of, you know, cheats and swindlers, on top of that, again, Rome used local people to become their tax collectors. And so the people would have hated the oppressive Roman government. And here's your own people— who are selling you out for the sake of this oppressive government that you can't stand. And so not only were they liars, cheaters, swindlers, they were traitors. They had betrayed their own people. They, had, they, they, were, they were sellouts. And so because of that, tax collectors were hated in the ancient world. If you were to have like categories of bad people in the ancient world, it might look something like this. You would have like the people who make mistakes. You would have like notorious sinners, like evil people. Then you would have Packers fans and then tax collectors. Is it too soon? That was a rough one last night for Packers fans. Maybe that was a little too soon, but you, you get the point. Now, now tax collectors, they were, the, they were the worst of the worst. They were just in a category all by themselves. They were despised human beings. And so here's Jesus rolling up as a spiritual leader, as a rabbi, And he approaches Matthew's tax collector booth, and he invites him into a relationship with himself. As that's the first picture that you will find in Jesus' world-changing type of ministry, here's what Jesus did. He simply invites the one. He invites the one. Again, I'm going to go back and read what we just read earlier, just that, that the piece where Jesus extends this invitation that says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. You would have imagined that Jesus coming in in this world-changing type of mission, he might have chose somebody who was a little bit more of an acceptable type of person into his own life. But what I love about Jesus is he has a heart for those who have need or are pushed aside or are marginalized in some way. Jesus seemed to gravitate to those that everybody else had pushed aside or forgotten altogether. And so every encounter Jesus makes, he's, he's hanging out with a woman at the well or, or a leper or, or somebody who is a, a lame man or unable to walk or a blind man, or whatever the person was. Typically, Jesus was drawn to those that everybody else had forgotten. And Jesus was this master of simply extending an invitation, inviting people into his own life. He would always slow down enough to have intentional, very present conversations with people. Jesus just simply loved people. I think for me, when I ever think about what it looks like to change the world, sometimes it becomes so daunting, paralyzing. Like, where do do you even start in changing the world? But but years ago, I heard this statement by uh, Pastor Andy Stanley. He says it this way. He says, "Just simply do for one what you wish you could do for everyone." I think there's just something so powerful about that statement: Just simply do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Sometimes we become paralyzed because I don't even know where to begin with all the needs that exist in our world. The truth is, you can't do everything. You can't not do something. And Jesus always just simply starts with the one. Have you ever considered how much God values people? And how much people matter to the heart of God? And maybe as a kind of an aside question, have you ever considered, like, how do you really know what something's worth? Maybe think about it this way. How many of you remember the show, the Antique Road Show? Has anybody ever seen the show? The Antique? A lot of you have seen the show. Now, now, I don't, I don't know what your experience is. I can only watch the show for about three minutes before I get really bored. But if, if you've watched the show, uh, you know that the concept that people bring something to these experts to find out how much this item uh, is valued at. And so they'll bring paintings, sculptures, uh, heirlooms that have been passed down from generation to generation, you know, uh, things that that are uh, sports memorabilia, whatever they think that somebody would have value, and they're trying to find out how much it's worth. And so they'll bring this object to this expert. This expert takes a look at it. They, they, they try to bring some explanation about what the item is, and then they put some sort of value on it. Now, the most expensive or the most valued item that the Antique Roadshow has ever experienced was in 2016. Uh, this person brought a watch. It was a pocket watch. It was a handcrafted pocket watch that was handcrafted in 1914 and still in stellar, mint, near-perfect condition. In this particular pocket watch, this expert looked at it and said that it was worth $1.5 million dollars. And that value's only gone up since two thousand sixteen. Some experts would say it'd be worth between two and three million dollars today. Now, if you think about that, it kinda of makes me pause and go, What makes that worth two to three million dollars today? Does something have value simply because something somebody says that it has value, or is value drawn in a different way? Now, I am not somebody that has two to three million dollars laying around. That's not walking around money for me. But if I did have two to three million dollars, I can almost guarantee you that I would not use that money to buy this particular pocket watch. And so it causes me to kind of pause and think this way. If you really want to know what something's worth, something's not worth what somebody says it's worth, something's actually worth what somebody's willing to pay. For example, on my wrist, I have a Garmin watch. It's not even a very expensive Garmin watch. I could tell you that it's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. It's not, by the way. Uh, but it's not worth what somebody says it's worth. It's only worth what somebody's actually willing to pay. Where am I going with this? You know what people are worth to God? You know, a lot of times people struggle with their own worth, and they struggle with their own worth because of what somebody has said they're worth along the way. But your worth is not determined by what somebody said you're worth along the way. Your worth is determined what somebody is willing to pay. Do you know what God was willing to pay? Jesus says he didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. First Corinthians says that you're not your own. You were bought at a price. You know what you were worth to God? You were worth everything to God. God was willing to send his one and only son into this world to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to declare your utmost eternal worth to God. God was willing to give his own son to join you into a relationship with him for all eternity. You are not worth what somebody says you're worth. You were worth what God was willing to pay. Your life has eternal value. And if that's true of you, that is also true of everyone around you. People have eternal worth to God. Do you see them through the same lens? Do you see every person you encounter is somebody that has eternal worth from God's perspective? If you want to be a world-changing type of person... We see people through the lens that God chose to see them, and we simply invite people into relationship. We invite the one. It can be simply inviting somebody to my life, inviting somebody into my home for dinner, inviting somebody into church. It's simply inviting the one. And often it's the one who has been pushed aside, who's been marginalized. It's the single parent in your neighborhood that's struggling to make ends meet. That person has eternal worth to God. Do they have worth to you? It could be the person struggling with their own identity that, that really is, is struggling to even kind of figure out their way in life. That person matters to God. Do they matter? To you, it could be the person that once had a thriving faith, but because of whatever happened, they became disconnected from the church and their faith. They've walked away. That person still has eternal worth to God. Do they have eternal worth to us? If we want to be a world-changing type of church, if we want to be world-changing types of people, we got to be people who are willing to invite the one. You know, months ago, right here at Willow, we took a survey and one of the questions in the surveys, we actually asked people, how did you first get to Willow? And, and really, what was that experience like when you became a part of this church? And, and, and what's fascinating is about 70% of people said that they, their initial connection to Willow Creek came at the invitation of a friend or a family member. Far more than Facebook or, or, or advertising or any kind of uh, uh, a special event that took place, people's first step into a faith community came... At the invitation of a friend, if you want to be a world changing person, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone and invite the one. And so that's the pattern you see in Jesus' life. But he not only invited the one, he also engaged the few. He engaged the few. I'm going to take us back to the same story. Look what happens next. So Jesus invites. Uh, Matthew into his life, look what happens next. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him as disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a fascinating statement. Again, Jesus invites Matthew into his life, and Matthew immediately returns the favor. So Matthew's throws a party. It's a dinner party. It's at his house, and Jesus finds himself there. Nobody's surprised that Matthew's having a party. Everybody's shocked out of their shoes that Jesus is at the center of the party. So much so that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious elite, they, they're, they're so taken aback by it that they show up at the party. They don't actually go in. It's almost like they're, they're hanging out at the perimeter. It's like I was at a junior high dance, right? I'm hanging out at the perimeter. I'm not yet ready to get on the dance floor, And that's kind of the Pharisees. They're they're hanging out. They're just appalled by what's taking place. They strike up this conversation with Jesus' disciples. Like, what in the world is he doing? How how is he a, a friend to the sinners? How is he hanging out with these types of folks? What I love about Jesus is he never compromised a spiritual conviction. And yet at the same time, irreligious people, they loved him. Now I think far too often followers of Jesus today, they go one of two ways. there will be people who keep their deep spiritual convictions, but because of it, they come off so religious to irreligious people that they really have no irreligious friends. Or people are willing to compromise their spiritual convictions in order to blend in with irreligious people, but that doesn't totally make sense as well. What's amazing about Jesus is He never compromised a spiritual conviction. Yet at the same time, those far from God loved Him. How did He do that? And how do you like engage the few in the right way, in that way? It, it makes me. It kind of makes me think of this. How many of you, how many of you love these? Some people are raising their hand, some people are shaking their heads like, I ate way too many of those recently, and I can't, don't tempt me, don't tempt me, pastor. Now, now what's interesting about, you know, uh, these types of cookies, they're great cookies. My son can eat an entire package in one sitting type of cookies, right? But there's just something about even the wrapper, right? You just look at the wrapper, that this big, delicious-looking cookie right on the cover of the packaging dipped in milk already, like our mouths are beginning to water and it's not even like 10 o'clock in the morning type thing, right? Like, like we're, 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 we're salivating for what's inside. Now, for some of us, we just look at the package and we want what's inside, right? Now, what if I showed you a different packaging? I, I found this, I found this backstage We've had it backstage for quite some time. I don't know what's been in this over the years, but just so you know, I put a couple Oreos inside. How many of you want the Oreos in this packaging? There's a couple takers. I don't know. That's a little bit weird. (laughs) But you look at this and you're like, I, I think I'll pass for most of us, right? Now what's interesting about this, the contents inside of these is the exact same contents. But one, you're like, man, I love one of these. And the other, you're like, "Mm, I'll pass. So it's not just about what's inside. It's a matter that, that we recognize that the packaging actually matters. Here's the truth. You and I are carriers of the greatest news on planet Earth. You and I are carriers of the good news, that the gospel, the life-changing, the eternity-altering news of Jesus Christ. I would argue it's the greatest news this world has ever known. And you and I get to be the carriers of this news. Here's the question: when people look at your life, do they see the good news that you hold? Do they want what you have? That the packaging really matters. Again, we got to be people that hold on to deep spiritual conviction, but at the same time, we live our lives in a compelling way that people might want what we actually have. So the question becomes, do people look at your life? When people look at your life, do they want what you have? When people look at your social media posts, do they want what you have? When people look at The way you treat your spouse or significant other or people close to you, do they want what you have? When the people listen to the words that you speak to your kids or those underneath your care, do people want what you have? What I love about Jesus is he never compromised a spiritual conviction, yet at the same time he lived in such a compelling way that people want what he held he, he learned how to engage the few. And so what that looks like is it's far less judgment and it's far more joy. We don't let people just look at our criticism. We allow people to see our care and compassion. We let people see that the life-giving nature of what God has done in our lives. If you want to change the world, we become people who invite the one. We engage the few. And I say we got to learn to be people who defend the many. We defend the many. Uh, Look look how this story concludes. Here's what, what happens next. It says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but Sinners. It's a powerful statement that Jesus begins to kind of defend the many. And basically he says, you know, I, what I've come to is to create a hospital for the sick, not a club for the elite. And so when it comes to a community of people who are committed to follow Jesus, that's what we're committed to be. We're committed to be far more of a hospital for the sick than we are a club for the elite. And so what that means is we become a people who defend every single person's right to have access to God. That it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what their walk of life has been. It doesn't matter the decisions they made last night. That every single human being has a right and has access to God. And we have to become a church, be a church that defends that right for many. Now let me be really clear. That doesn't mean that we have to defend everybody's choices that they made. That doesn't mean we have to defend beliefs or political perspectives or anything like that. We don't even have to have agreement on all those things. We're not here to defend people's choices. We're not here to defend people's beliefs. We're not here to defend people's political perceptions. But we're absolutely here to defend every single human being's right to have an access to their Father who cares for them. We must be a church that continues to defend that on behalf of everybody. And not just defending people's right to have access to God, but to defend that every single human being has the right to dignity, has the right to basic needs, has the right to food, to clean water, to clothing, to those types of things. We will always be the type of church who defends that people can have access to God and works tirelessly to try to help people get connected to him. And also defend people's right to have access to some of the most basic things that they need in their lives and in their journeys. That's why our Compassionate Justice Ministries are so incredibly important around here. Because it gives us the opportunity as a church to defend the many. You know, months ago, uh, some of us, we we turned on the TV and we, we learned about a crisis that was taking place on the other side of the world. Uh, when, when the U.S. decided to, to pull troops out of Afghanistan, it created a, a refugee crisis, particularly for those uh, who were uh, kind to U.S. soldiers were there or, and were, were helping to take care of some of the U.S. soldiers there. The moment that we pulled out, it created a crisis for those individuals. Now again, I'm not here to talk about whether we think that was the right thing or the wrong thing, or I'm not interested in political perspectives around what happened, but what I am very interested in is the crisis that involved vulnerable people when that took place. And so the question becomes, what do you do in the wake of a crisis like that? It was actually just a couple of weeks later, there was a partnering organization locally that contacted us as a church. And and they said, uh, many of these refugees are actually going to be resettled in the United States, some of which are going to be resettled in the Chicagoland area. Would you as a church consider putting together welcome kits? Because these people are going to be leaving everything that they've known behind. They'll leave their possessions behind, their home behind. Much of everything they have, they're going to come simply with the clothes in their back and maybe a couple of little personal items, and that's really it. Would you be willing to be a church that puts together some welcome kits that sets these refugees up for success once they land here in the Chicagoland area? Now, here's what I love. I love that we're known enough as a church— of defending the many that that when a crisis like this takes place, that a partner thinks to pick up the phone and call Willow Creek. I love that about you. And so they they called and said, is it possible that you'd be able to put together 50 welcome kits that would be able to serve those who come into our area? We're like, I don't know. We'll, we'll, We'll say yes to 50, and then I don't really know much beyond that. And so at a vision night, a few months back, we shared that need with some who were a part of the vision night. And on that particular night, we had 93 groups say, yes, I'll provide one of those kits. And to this day, we've actually had the opportunity to deliver over 80 of those kits to refugees who've now resettled in the area, and the remaining 10 will be delivered in the coming weeks and months as more and more refugees make their way to our area. I love that we are a church who's willing to do these types of things. We wanted to share a little bit of an update of really what that journey's been like. So here's that update for you.
1: I first heard about the refugee crisis in Afghanistan when my husband came home from work to tell me that we pulled troops out and we started watching the news about what was unfolding.
2: I first heard about it on Instagram I was just woke up one morning scrolling through like I always do and it was just just really horrible the things that I saw and um, made me feel like like almost like why is God letting this happen.
1: I said turn the TV off I can't I can't stand to
0: see a child be pulled away from their family.
2: At first, I mean, I didn't really think much about it. I'm like, you know, it's on the other side of the world. There's not much I can do about it. The first time I heard about the refugee
0: supply kit was at Vision Night.
1: When I first heard about the kit, I was excited to see that there was like an actionable item that we could help people in a really tangible way.
2: And as soon as I heard about it, I was like, this is something I want to do.
0: Everyone in the group, there was like no question
1: that we would do it.
2: I just tried to get in my small group to be willing to, to share what God has blessed them with. Eight high school students running around at Walmart it tends to not be a pleasant thing for other people. And we actually surpassed the goal by a couple hundred dollars, which was really cool to see.
1: The day that we got to meet the family moving into the apartment, uh, we planned to get there early so that we could drop off some groceries and just make sure that everything was set up and ready to go. And we looked around, and the stuff we bought seemed like so much when it was in our car versus when it's unpacked in this one-bedroom apartment and you realize, like, this is it. This is all they have. It's this and whatever they've got in their suitcase.
2: I just can't imagine what that would be like, you know, coming to a a new country you'd know nothing about. Just the hopelessness and the despair, I feel like that I would feel would just be unbearable.
1: To forever have uh, faces, when I think of refugees, to be able to picture their apartment and see like, this is what it means to be a refugee to start over.
2: Something we talk about in small group a lot is being the hands and feet of Jesus. And this, I felt like was a really good opportunity to actually carry that out and, you know, live what we're talking about, you know, instead of like we're walking the walk instead of just, you know, talking about it and go on living our lives.
0: love God love people change the world I want to be a part of a church like that I want to be a church be a part of a church that's committed to be a group of people say you know what we can't do everything but we can't not do something and so I will commit with my life I'll commit to invite the one And I'll even begin to pray about who that one is literally right now. Who is the person in your life that that has some sort of need? Who is it that God's put in your sphere of influence, who's kind of been pushed aside? Who is it that, that God has strategically placed you in relationship? That you can't do everything, but you can do something for them. And would you be willing to invite the one? Into your life, into your home, when appropriate, into this community. And just see God do some radically transformational things in their life through you. Invite the one. Will we be people who are absolutely committed to engaging the few? That in those larger environments or medium sized group of environments, or as we interact with people in social media, do we do do so in such a way that people can recognize that you are the carrier of the greatest news this world has ever known? And do people see in your life that the joy, the life, the care, the compassion, this may be possible through Jesus? Let's change the world by engaging the few. And let's be a church that together in partnership with other organizations and a lot of different types of way would we be a community of people who will defend the many that every single person has a right to have access to God every single person needs their dignity their God-given dignity upheld and may we always always, always be Do that in such a way that really honors the love, the grace, the favor of our great God in their life. Church, let's change the world. God, that's our prayer. In some senses, it feels so incredibly daunting, yet at the same time, God, it's something that we never do on our own. That we realize that any true world changing type of endeavor is only made possible by the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I just ask that you'd move in us. God, I ask that you'd stir our hearts. God, I ask that we wouldn't get distracted by things that don't matter, but we'd be able to focus our attention on the things that actually matter. God, give us courage, give us strength. Give us favor as we represent you in this world. We love you, God. We say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.